Welcome to City Church. We are a biblically-based, relationally-driven, spirit-led church, encouraging everyone to follow Jesus, grow together, and serve others. We're excited to share this sermon with you today, and you can always find out more about us online at citychurchseville.com. As we step into this new sermon series, I want to let us know the purpose for this series that will last the entire month of July, or June, I'm sorry, getting ahead of myself, the entire month of June. And the purpose for this sermon series, preached from the book of 1 Thessalonians, is to challenge and inspire us to live fully for Jesus Christ during times of adversity. I want to say this again, this is the purpose for the sermon series for this entire month. The purpose of this sermon series preached from the book of 1 Thessalonians is to challenge and inspire us to live fully for Jesus Christ during times of adversity. Now, adversity simply means stuff that comes against us. The truth of it is, though, as I think about adversity, there's sort of two types. There's the type that kind of comes from within our own lives. That kind of stuff where things attach themselves to us, we face things, we make decisions, we maybe have people in our lives that just feel like they're sort of opposed to what God wants for us or God's best in our lives. But there's also adversity outside of our lives. Just so you know, in the Bible, that's called persecution. It's called when people oppose the advancement of the gospel and those who live for Christ. What we're going to discover in the book of 1 Thessalonians is both types of adversity exist. But what's interesting is the primary form of adversity in the book of 1 Thessalonians is the stuff that comes from people who oppose the gospel and those who follow Jesus. Now, interestingly enough, we're getting ready to read from the book of 1 Thessalonians. It's the first letter Paul ever wrote. The Apostle Paul wrote a lot of letters in the Newer Testament, but this is his first one. And one of the reasons why I love this letter and I wanted to pick it or choose it through prayer to preach through this month is for several reasons, but one of them is this, is the church is doing really well. It's one of Paul's pastoral letters where He's not kind of rebuking for half the letter. This is one where the church is doing really, really well. And what Paul does is he reminds them of some very specific things. Now, it is also worth saying that Paul writes two letters to the church of Thessalonica. Here's how we know this. There's 1 Thessalonians and, can we all count? 2 Thessalonians. So just so you know, he writes two letters to the church. Now in just a moment, we're going to read the beginning of the letter to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Now again, know this. This is the earliest of Paul's letters. Paul had pioneered this church. And this sermon's basically going to be about the context of this letter and what we learn and can practically apply to our own lives spiritually. But again, this sermon will have a lot to do with the backdrop of the letter that Paul writes. Let's begin reading in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. 1 Thessalonians 1, 1 through 3. Here's what the Bible tells us. 
Here's Paul's letter. Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Here's what's interesting. Three people wrote this letter. Little doubt Paul is the primary author, but three people wrote it. There's Silas, and there's Timothy. By the way, I haven't met a lot of people named Silas, but what was really cool in the first service, I met a brand new baby by the name of Silas, and I told the mother I would mention her baby during the service, and I did. (laughs) Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians. This church is called City Church, Charlottesville. That church was called the Church of the Thessalonians. It's the name of the church. And Paul goes on on to write, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. Then there's a heading which isn't found in the original manuscripts. Thanksgiving for the Thessalonians' faith. You see, this letter is one where Paul's excited about what's happening in the church. Here's what he writes. We, meaning those three people, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, we always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. This is Paul's first letter that he writes to a church. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to think about the first church that you were really ever aware of that you attended and you were a part of. I want you to think about your first church. Take a moment and do that. Again, think about the first church. I remember my first real church experience well. It was a church near Nina, Wisconsin, I've mentioned it many times. I was raised on a farm. We didn't go to church. And then a friend of my mother's began to talk to her about Jesus. Before I knew it, my mom was waking me up on Sunday mornings and taking me to church. I thought this church was normal, but I found out later it wasn't. It was a church that had a lot of hippies in it. It was the end of what was called the Jesus Movement, were these hippies, and there were hundreds of thousands of hippies all around the country that had been drugged out, sexed out, rock and rolled out, and they heard the truth of the gospel and the peace and the salvation and the forgiveness, and they were saying yes to Jesus by the hundreds of thousands all over the country. It all began on the beach in California, and it probably took five years to get to northern Wisconsin. (laughs) But that's where... I step into this church, which has got a lot of these hippies that are coming to faith. I thought that's what church was. I thought church was a place where an old guy got up front and told told really messed up young people how to find Jesus. Well, I wasn't a hippie because my mom cut my hair. And all she did was put a number three razor guard on and shaved our heads every other week. So I was not a hippie. As a matter of fact, hippies were everything my dad despised, everything. He was German. And here we are in this church full of hippies. It was incredible. Now, that's the first church experience that I had. Now, picture this. What was your first church experience? I doubt it was a lot like mine. But what I can tell you is Paul writes this letter, this first letter, to the church of the Thessalonians. 
And when he does, he begins right out of the gate by encouraging them. But as I mentioned earlier, this sermon's going to be a little bit about the background to the book because the background speaks tremendously to us and our faith walking with Jesus today. Now, what's really cool about the Newer Testament, maybe you've never read it, and if you haven't, I encourage you to do it. But if you've never read, or maybe you have, you would know this, that the Newer Testament begins with four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Luke actually has two parts to it. Luke is the Gospel of Luke, but then Dr. Luke wrote a whole nother book called the Book of Acts. And Acts is about the Gospel spreading after Jesus is resurrected. The Gospel of Luke is about the death up into the birth, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And then the book of Acts is what happens after Jesus is resurrected. Now what's cool is in the book of Acts, you can take all of Paul's pastoral epistles and you can map them by the book of Acts. The book of Acts tells us where every church was that he had pioneered and then these letters get written to those churches. It's really cool. You can literally map it. And so what's fascinating about the church of the Thessalonians is how Paul ends up getting there. It tells us something about faith and it tells us something about following Jesus. So in a moment, we're going to read from Acts chapter 17 that literally tells us how Paul planted the church there. But in Acts chapter 16, now here's chapter 16, we're gonna read from 17. Acts chapter 16 tells us what happens to Paul just before he heads towards Thessalonica. And it's an incredible story. Here's the apostle Paul who is a Jew. He's a Pharisee of all Pharisees, which means he's a religious leader of the Jewish world. Also know this, it's many years into Christianity before Christianity is ever separated from Judaism. The majority of first century Christians tend to be Jews. So Christianity kind of becomes separate over time, but at the time of the Apostle Paul, it's the same thing. Christians are Jews who believe Jesus is the Messiah. That's how this works. So the Apostle Paul, he goes around and his modus of operandi is he goes into a city and he goes to the synagogue and he begins to preach. And what he preaches is this, that Jesus Christ is the Messiah you've been waiting for and the way you know it's him is he was resurrected from the dead. And because he's resurrected, you can be sure he's the Messiah. He's the one you're looking for. So that's what Paul does. Now, usually, and you'll read this in the book of Acts, Paul goes into a synagogue, he begins to preach, people begin to come to faith in Jesus, but it doesn't end well. Because usually there's a mob that tries to kill him. That's just how it works. He goes into a synagogue, he preaches, people begin to come to faith, and then finally a mob begins to kill, kill him. Now let's look at Acts chapter 16. In Acts chapter 16, the apostle Paul goes to a town named Philippi. When he's in Philippi, he goes down by the river, and it says he joins in and begins to share the gospel. Well, why is he by the river? Well, it's simple. If you're Jewish and you don't have enough Jews in a city to have a synagogue, you meet every Saturday morning down by the local body of water. That's how it works. 
So Paul, as a Jew, knows this. He goes down by the river in Philippi, and he begins to share the gospel with the Jews that are there. And one woman who's wealthy by the name of Lydia comes to faith in Jesus and invites Paul into her home, and they kind of begin to do Bible studies in her home. That's how it works. Well, anyway, Acts 16 tells us that the Apostle Paul is there in Philippi, and he's there a good amount of time, and he's going back and forth to prayer meetings, he's sharing the gospel, and one day he begins to walk through the town, and a demon-possessed slave girl begins to follow him, and she begins to announce, these men are here, speaking of Paul and Silas, these men are here to explain to you how to enter into a relationship with God. And you read it literally in the book of Acts, chapter 16. So everywhere he goes, this slave girl pops out from behind the hedges and goes, these people are sent by the Most High God for you to know how to be saved. Well, if you read the text in Acts 16, it says that Paul probably liked it the first day. It's kind of cool, right? You have someone running announcing your arrival, pretty excited about announcing your revival. And then it says, after many, many days, Paul gets tired of it, and he literally turns around in the street, and he rebukes the demon, and the demon leaves her. And the demon just, well, here's the issue. That slave girl, because of the demonic possession, could prophesy and tell people the future. And her owners were wealthy. So you'd pay a huge chunk of money to go and sit with her. The demonic presence in her life could allow her to tell you your future or something that's coming. People were paying tons of money for this. But when the demon got cast out, guess what happened? The goose that was laying the golden egg got cooked. That's what happened. That goose no longer lays eggs. And, and Acts 16 tells us that her owners got furious. And he went to the town square and they rallied up a mob, and they brought false charges against the Apostle Paul, and they had this mob move towards him to kill him. They were going to tear him apart. But what ends up happening is Paul gets arrested, he gets put into prison. Acts 16, there's a miraculous deliverance from prison where God literally opens the doors to the prison. But Paul and Silas, instead of running out and hiding, they just sit there. And they wait, and the jailer comes running in because in the Roman world, if he loses his prisoners, he gets executed. And he hears that the prison's blown wide open, and there's Paul and Silas, and they're like, hey, we didn't run. Jesus set us free. Do you want to know about Jesus? He goes, okay. And his whole house becomes Christians. It's an incredible story. And then the next day, the city magistrates send a message that Paul and Silas need to leave. And then Paul informs the magistrate that he's a Roman citizen. And the magistrate had beaten and flogged Paul severely before he put him in prison, which is complete violation of a Roman citizen in law. And so Paul says to the magistrate, you have to personally walk me out of the city. So Paul has the magistrates come and walk him out of the city, and then he gets in a traveling mode and ends up in Thessalonica. So picture where Paul's come from. He's come from a mob that's trying to kill him, and he ends up miraculously getting delivered, and he shows up at this city, and then the scripture tells us what Paul does. Let's pick up our reading in Acts 17, verse 1. Here's what the text says. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphilopas and Apollonia, 
they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, remember Paul's custom, go to a city, go to the synagogue, and preach that Jesus is the Messiah. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scripture, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. And some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks, so non-Jews, and quite a few prominent women. Isn't that fascinating? So Paul shows up in Thessalonica. He begins to preach. He's preaching in the synagogue. But there are non-Jews that hear the gospel, and there are prominent women from the community that begin to decide to follow Jesus. Verse 5, but other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. In other words, Paul's there in a new city. Goes in, preaches a riot. Now let's read on. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. In other words, Paul's reputation has preceded him. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into a turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. Next verse. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to, to Berea. On arriving there, what do they do? They went to the Jewish synagogue, and what do you think they did? They started preaching about Jesus again. That's what Paul does. But I want you to notice that it's getting so violent that after three weeks, the leaders of the church take Paul and have him exit Thessalonica. It's just not worth it. There's too much heat because of Paul being a part of that church, and so they send him on. Now, when I think about my own spiritual history, and I think about churches that have had effect in my own life. And every time I read this story of the Apostle Paul going to Thessalonica and planting a church, I think about one of my mentors. I have a mentor. One of my mentors is a man by the name of Jesse Owens. Jesse's in his late 80s, and I spoke to him this morning. We talk several times a week. But Jesse is just a very, very unique individual. And Jesse was pastoring a church in Princeton, New Jersey that was a long way from the university. It was kind of on the backside of the city. And one day, Jesse, in prayer, believed that God spoke to him that there was an empty Presbyterian church building on Nassau Street in Princeton and that he, with whoever would exit that church, should go and buy this new big church building and that they should have a presence on the main street of Princeton University. By the way, here's a picture of the church building. And so Jesse gathered together some people and just simply out of simple faith made a move to purchase this building to put a church, a vibrant faith community, right across the street from Princeton University. 
Now, the next slide that you're going to see now is literally the view when you look out of the front door of the church that Jesse and the small group of people got together and purchased. That's Rockefeller College at University of Princeton. Literally, this is the view out the front door of the church. Now, here's what's interesting about Jesse. Jesse was the son of a tobacco farmer from North Carolina. Jesse has a deep southern accent. Not only this, Jesse's education was not the type of education you would put on a resume to become the pastor of a church in Princeton. No doctorates, no PhDs. He had a great ministry prep, but it wasn't from some famous seminary somewhere. So here comes Jesse, and he's in the city of Princeton, and he's got this thick southern accent. Just let me be blunt. None of this works. None of it. Wrong resume, wrong CV, definitely wrong accent. It just doesn't work. But all Jesse did was walk the streets. And he would go in every single shop and meet the shop owner and say, you need to come to church on Sunday. Well, no one ever does that in Princeton. No one, and with a deep southern accent. Now, here's what's stunning about Jesse. He comes in. They managed to purchase this building. By the way, the only reason why the church was for sale is a discotheque had tried to purchase it. But there's one little clause in the permanent deed to the building that says this property must always be used for a house of worship. So the discotheque could not buy it, and it sat mothballed for, for literally for years. So Jesse, I think they paid $400,000 to buy this church. So he goes around, he's knocking on doors. Here's what's incredible. One of the first converts was a physicist from Princeton University by the name of Buzz Jobes. I'm going to repeat that. One of the first converts at this church was Buzz Jobes, a physicist at Princeton where Einstein worked. You catch this? Now, let me reframe it. Southern drawl, undereducated, and a physicist at Princeton University, one of the first converts. Next convert was a lady who was the matriarch of what was called the Patterson family. Transcendental meditation was huge in Princeton back in the mid-70s, late-70s. And so she was at a TM meeting trying to find peace and purpose for her life. Someone at the TM meeting in the very back stood up and just shared a couple of things about how they believed that Jesus would bring you the peace that TM could not. And after that meeting, she made a beeline for that guy and said, we need to talk because I've been doing this for years. My life is a disaster and it's getting worse and I need some help. She gave her heart to Jesus and so did her whole family. They became one of the central families of that church. Then there was another guy, his name was Dan. Dan was at the same TM meeting as well. He heard the person get up and challenge, and then he became a believer in Jesus. And then Jesse, because the church had no money, wanted to put in a baptismal tank, and he had to have architectural drawings. So he went across the street, there's a little side street called Bank Street. He went across the street, he went and knocked on an architect's door and he said, look, I don't have any money. I pastor the church across the street and God wants you to do the drawings for the baptismal tank. <laughs> it's a true story. That guy became a follower of Jesus and became part of the church. Here's what I'm trying to tell you. Is that many of us sitting here think, 
that God can't use us. Yes, he can. I don't care who you are. God can use you. And Jesse Owens, on paper, was the absolute wrong person to become the pastor of the church in Princeton. Absolute wrong person. Yet God knew better, and God knew best. But I wanted to say one other thing about the beginning of our story. In the beginning of our story, we looked at Acts chapter 16, where the apostle Paul casts a demon out of a woman. And when he does, those people that owned her lost their income. I know that this is probably not an exact biblical extrapolation of that story, but I feel so compelled to share it in the services today. Oftentimes, if you're employed and then you meet Jesus, and the employment you're in is outside of what's ethical and moral and best, it's time for a change. And I've watched people who were in a certain line of work But when they met Jesus, they could no longer do what they were doing, or they no longer could do how they were doing, the way they were doing, and why they were doing it. When I think about this story, and I think about you and me following Jesus 2,000 years later, here's what I can promise you, is that when the gospel of Jesus Christ comes into a life, the gospel begins to transform us. Jesus changes us into who he wants us to be. And when that happens, that effect never just stays with us, but that effect begins to bring the kingdom of God into the people's lives of those that are around us. I know that many of us can never envision our lives as being a group of people who God can use, but I promise you, he can. I remembered one time talking to Buzz Jobes about his conversion was one of the craziest things I've ever heard in my life, where a physicist heard the gospel from a southern kind of backwater guy in a church in Princeton. And he said that's one of the reasons why he was drawn to it, because the thing of it is, it didn't make sense. And yet God used it. I want us to think about our own lives. As we move towards these next several weeks of sermons, We're going to begin to talk about the adversity that comes when we follow Jesus. As a final parting thought, here's one of the things I'm going to ask that you would do. If you ever see me and I'm on the downtown mall or somewhere, and you come up to me and you have a friend that doesn't attend city, what I do not want you to do is introduce me and say, this is Pastor Pete. And here's why. The moment you say that, It's what I call a conversation killer. The conversation just dies. I know what it's like to be on a plane and someone will sit down and they'll say, what do you do? And I'll say to them, what do you do? Because here's what I know. If I sit on a plane and someone asks me what I do, by the way, never ask someone what they do. Ask them where they're from. If you ask someone where they're from, they will talk till Jesus comes. If you ask them what they do, they're either going to love it or they're going to be very ashamed of what they do. Or maybe they just got fired. So you never want to ask someone what they do. Ask them where they're from. 
And so I know what it's like to sit on a plane. Someone asks me what I do, and I go, you first. And so they'll tell me what they do, and I ask some probing questions. We're having a lot of fun. And then they'll remember I avoided the question. And then they'll say, so what do you do? And I'll say, well, actually, I pastor a church. And almost 100% of the time, here's what will happen. They'll freeze. They look at the ground. They look over, and they're thinking, did I cuss, tell a bad joke? And then every one of them does this. Literally, it's almost inevitable. They'll say, oh, that, that's great. And then they'll say this, almost every time they'll say, I had a cousin three times removed who I think she lived a pole in Poland and she was a nun. And I'll think, what does that have to do with anything we're talking about? Do you kind of get the point though? And here's the thing, is that when I think about the gospel of Jesus, it always gets a response, always. Some of it is violent, some of it is floggings and beatings and persecution. But others of it is an openness to grace and peace that is found nowhere else. Nowhere else. But as we think about our own lives, I want to encourage you that God desires to use all of us. And if you're visiting city this morning and you're from somewhere else, God wants to use you there. But God will use anyone who surrendered to him. And oftentimes on paper, it doesn't make any sense. Would you stand with me as we close? As we close out our time, I'd like us just to take a moment and close our eyes in God's presence. As we take just a moment before we sing and worship Jesus, I think about what it was like in Thessalonica. Their pastor of three weeks had to be smuggled out of the city to save his life. And yet that church began to thrive, began to grow. And God built a vibrant fellowship of faith in the city of Thessalonica, even though there was persecution and resistance. Let's each one of us consider again the gospel of Jesus. Let's do it with gratitude and openness to how he desires to use us in his kingdom.